Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello and welcome to this Behind the Knife episode in surgical education. We're the general surgery education team from Cleveland Clinic. I'm Nicole Brooks, a general surgery resident and current surgical education research fellow. I'm Judith French. I'm the PhD education scientist for the Department of General Surgery. I'm Jeremy Lubman. I'm the director of graduate education here and former program director. On today's episode, we'll be discussing application to surgery residency in the match. It's hard to believe, but the newest trainees are joining our programs in less than a month, and at the same time, senior medical students are beginning their application process. The last few years have seen some major changes in the application and recruitment process that continue to evolve. So today we're going to dive into some of those details as well as learn more about why they're happening. We're joined by Dr. Jennifer LaFamina. Dr. LaFamina is an associate professor at UMass Chan Medical School and surgical oncologist at UMass Memorial Medical Center, where she also serves as the program director for the General Surgery Residency Program. She completed med school at UCLA, residency at Massachusetts General Hospital, and fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. LaFamina is a true leader in surgical education. She serves on the board of directors of the Association of Program Directors in Surgery and was the APDS representative to ERAS and ACGME. She's the chair of the General Surgery Application and Interview Task Force and has been instrumental in our understanding of the use of the supplemental application for medical students applying to general surgery. She'll also be joining the board of directors at the NRMP starting in July. We're thrilled to welcome you to the show. All right, so let's start from the very beginning. Why was the supplemental application even created? Thank you, Dr. French. Um, And first of all, thank you for welcoming me today. And as we get started, um, I have been incredibly fortunate to work for the APDS and the AAMC and soon the NRMP um, as I transitioned those earlier roles. Uh, But today I'm really speaking to you on behalf of my own personal opinions and not those of those organizations. But, you know, the ERAS supplemental and even beyond the ERAS supplemental application, the recommendations set forth by general surgery were in response to the increasing challenges faced across the continuum of residency recruitment. And many times when we think of recruitment, we always use the word the match, which somehow gets associated with the RMP. But really, recruitment is this continuum of submission, application review, and the invitations the interviews themselves, and the rank list. And what's important to know is that each one of these steps involves a different group of people. The application submission and the management of interviews, well, that's in AAMC's and ERAS pocket. The interviews, that's within the programs. And then it's really the match of the candidate in the programs that is under the match programs, including the NRMP. And what we know is if you look across the entire continuum, One of the major challenges that we're facing are the increasing and ballooning application numbers relative to positions. And in doing so, there is a sea of applicants that are having a hard time having their voice, their priorities, their interests heard. And also programs in the number of applicants submitting are unable or having challenges identifying truly serious applicants and applicants in which there might be value alignment. And so the purpose of the ERAS supplemental application and many of the other initiatives that were put forth over the last two years 
we're in a direct response to that first challenge, ballooning application numbers and a desire to get to a point where we fostered holistic review and fostered value alignment. To put scope on this, if you refer to the NRMP program director survey last cycle, 2022, in order to fill six positions in your program, your program will receive almost 1,100 applications. That's the scope of the discordant. And so this was, the ERAS supplemental was really one of the first steps to try to address some of those challenges. You talked about holistic review, and maybe you could just clarify for some of the listeners that are new to this, what is holistic review? But along the same lines, that's a process that takes a lot of time. And you're telling us how many thousands of applications there are. So how do you jive those two things together? So holistic review, to answer your first question, Dr. Littman, is really a focus on value alignment, understanding, identifying an applicant's unique attributes that they bring to your program, to the specialty, to patients, and to really search for those applicants that align to those values of your program. And one way to do that is for a program to list out what are those values and to use those values to drive the review of an application, uh, the conduct of an interview, as opposed to previous years where holistic review was not the center point and instead the objective data points of step one, step two, class performance, et cetera, were so incredibly important. Now, holistic review does to some extent account for some of those items, but really we're seeing this transition to really the value alignment as opposed to the overemphasis on scores, which frankly, we well know are prone to implicit bias. And so it's really trying to focus on attributes that perhaps are less subject to the implicit bias that is very present in standardized test examinations, MSPEs, even letters of recommendation. I mean, if, if for those who are listening, if you have not looked at the data around implicit bias in those aspects, it's an eye opener and really has taught me a lot about how I write a letter of recommendation. With regards to your second question, the holistic review is tough and it takes time, but the time is worth the investment. The goal of the ERAS supplemental in year one, and now we are currently ending year two, was to help bring a voice been a pilot study for two years. It'll transition to kind of mainstream next year. But really, it was a way to give applicants a voice in a more concise manner to streamline holistic review in an effective way. So the initial goal of the supplemental application was really to find a streamlined way to allow applicants an ability to communicate a pro to a program, not only those values and those interests, but also their interest in the program. Can you describe the process of how the supplemental application was created, including the items that it contains, how those were chosen? Sure. So the ERAS supplemental application was really the, the brainchild of the ANC and ERAS. And the team that developed this, I must say, was, was simply incredible and always had the equity of the applicant at the heart of every decision. And I think that's really, really critical to all of this. I need to take this back to kind of the, the history of signals. Signals were developed initially in the economic world where Dr. Alvin Roth described the match process and won a Nobel Prize for that. 
they showed that in the economics world, the presence of a signal, and we'll talk about high versus low later, but the presence of a signal significantly increased the ability of an applicant in economics to get an interview and to have a successful job match in a highly competitive field. It allowed the applicant a voice. And so based on that data years later, ENT residency was the first of its kind in graduate medical education to take a similar paradigm, but within residencies. And Dr. Roth used two signals and ENT used five in year one, but ENT's initial data, which was now three years ago, showed that an ENT, if an applicant submitted signals, it significantly increased their interview offers. And so it was really based upon the economics data and ENT's initial data at that time that there started to be a dialogue, not only within specialties, but also at the level of the of ERAS and AAMC of whether or not we should now take this information and expand it to see if those same findings were present in a larger context of specialties that essentially have more positions like surgery or medicine. And so in year one, ERAS supplemental team invited internal medicine, general surgery, and dermatology. And this, again, was a pilot study, voluntary for both programs and for applicants, through a series of working groups with members of those specialties, deans, program directors, students, essentially all of the stakeholders. The initial ERAS supplemental application was created, again, with the goal of driving an equitable, holistic review. And the initial year one ERAS supplemental application, which again was voluntary and involving only three specialties, had three components, past or meaningful experiences, geographic preferences, meaning that you could select up to three of nine geographic regions, and then program signals. In year one surgery, we elected to not participate in geographic preferences. The other specialties did participate. And... All programs essentially used low numbers of signals, although there was some variation between medicine and surgery versus dermatology. And so that is initially how the study was designed and the initial components. So you talked about this being a part of a, a two-year pilot. Now, I know you probably can't share all the results with us, but what can you share so far with the overall results of this supplemental application in general surgery? Absolutely. So the year one findings have been shared publicly at this point at multiple different meetings and conferences. And what we learned in that initial study was that first and foremost, program signals were not equally distributed. So the top percentage of programs received a significant number of the signals. Additionally, signals and I'm going to speak specifically about signals because surgery did not participate in geographic preferences in year one. But we do know that signals were not a sole determining factor in determination of an interview, and nor should they be, as that is not how they're designed. In surgery, overwhelmingly, they were used as one little component of a holistic review. And in some situations, if you have equal candidates, potentially a tiebreaker, as it might be a marker of interest in your program. And feedback from program directors really felt that it allowed them to identify applicants that they might have otherwise overlooked. You can easily imagine, I'll, I'll use the example of my own training. I am from Los Angeles. I did all my training in Los Angeles. Um, why would a program on the East Coast think that I, who had never done a rotation, was serious about the East Coast? And so you can really understand, especially in a time of COVID where this was developed, where no external sub-eyes were allowed, 
where the use of preference signal and showing your interest, especially if you can't travel there, could be very powerful. And that was the context and when this was all being designed. Initial year one data really was asking two questions in my mind. And again, these are my personal opinions or what I was looking for. In order for this to move forward in GME, number one, did it achieve what it needed to achieve, which was, did it increase the interview offer rate? We have no idea at this time if it impacts the bottom line. That's really important to know. All we could assess in that study was, did it impact interview offer? And number two, did it cause harm? Those were the two things that had to be asked in order to even see if signals were something to move forward with. And first and foremost, what it showed is across all three specialties, signaling significantly improved the likelihood of receiving an interview offer. So objective number one was met. Equally or even more importantly is it did so across all genders. It did so across different groups that were underrepresented in medicine. And it did so across all what are called applicant types, specifically within ERAS. This is MDs, DOs, and IMGs. All groups, regardless of gender, race and ethnicity, and applicant type, benefited from the use of signals. And it didn't harm any of these subgroups. And I think that, in my mind, was so incredibly important to know that signals might at least be a pathway to give applicants a voice in the sea. So that's all helpful. And, you know, you and me and Dr. French and lots of other people, we've been doing advising for medical students for a long time. And it was kind of easy because you just have your routine things that you'd say. Now everything is different. So how do you advise your students who come to you about what they should do with the supplemental with signals, how they should use it most effectively. So this varies by specialty. To take a step back and to put that into context, so based on year one data in year two, the U.S. supplemental was expanded to 16 specialties. There was almost 40,000 applicants, still free, still was a study, still voluntary. But here's where things changed last year. Surgery continues to go with a small number of signals. Other specialties, though, did a variation of signal number. And some specialties like orthopedics and OB, for instance, used large signal numbers. And OBGYN also incorporated what's considered asymmetric signaling, which means there are gold and silver tokens, where there are a few gold but many silver tokens or signals. And so perhaps we will learn from year two data, which is not yet available, the impact of high and low signals as well as asymmetric signaling. However, at least in current time, if you look at small number of signals, my personal opinion is that signals are not sufficient to receive an interview. Signals are only intended to be a small component of a holistic review. And at least based on year one data, we know that that is how it was used in general surgery. And so I certainly would not use signals as a sole way of, of obtaining an interview. And what I mean by that is that, in my opinion, signals should still be distributed to programs where one might be in a historical match zone. Maybe you can use a signal at what's considered a reach program based on, you know, historical data, for instance, Residency Explorer. 
but I certainly would not advise using multiple signals, especially if you have five available for multiple reach programs, because what we do know is that they're not sufficient alone in order to obtain an interview. So personally, I advise students, I would use four of your signals for programs in your historical match zone and consider one reach. I would also advise students to ask your home program and ask your external sub-eyes, have the opportunity, meet with the program director. Is the program director of that organization, do they want you to signal or do they not need a signal from you to get an interview? So as an example, if a program has many applicants coming into the program, they might still ask that signals be distributed. Other programs might say, you know what, I'm going to interview all five people no matter what. I don't need you to use a signal on my program. So I personally would advise a conversation with the program director in the residency that you your home base or your external about how they are going to think about signals from internal candidates. So you discussed that there's some different practices that have evolved in different specialties, like high and low number of signals and the asymmetric signaling. Can you talk a little bit about why these differences developed and if you think we should be doing anything else in surgery based off of what you know now? So signals were initially studied, as I said, in economics. And in that situation, two signals were used, low number of signals. And the reason why that was beneficial is that it allowed applicants an ability to have a credible voice where employers, residency training programs could have confidence in their meeting. Furthermore, by having a low number of signals, the lack of a signal didn't indicate a lack of interest. It indicated I ran out. So for instance, if you have two signals or three signals or four signals or low number of signals, and you apply to 30 programs, if you don't signal 25 of them, it's not that you're not interested in them, it's just that you simply ran out. And I really do believe personally that that one fundamental point was really important in order to make this really a small portion of a holistic review where I do feel that programs learned early on, they could not overvalue the meaning of a signal. On the other hand, there is a another train of thought that favors the use of what are called high signals. And in this situation, applicants are able to issue signals at a much, much higher rate. And in short, there is a question about whether this could essentially artificially induce a soft application limit. Because if you go back to the initial concern, which is high application numbers, there's a large C, nobody has a voice, nobody can review the voice. If you increase the number of signals, and that number of signals somewhat resembles the number of interviews you need, uh, there is a concern that this will induce a soft application limit, which in some ways solves the problem, right? There is a benefit to that. I would offer my personal bias on this, however, is that this potentially is going to benefit the groups that are best educated for their use. So again, we get back to implicit bias. If you originate from a medical school that is highly resourced and has educators who are highly trained in signals and who know the data, you're going to be very well prepared to issue those 
15 signals or 30 signals in orthopedics. And so I have some concern about the lack of equity among students who might not have, who might have variations in resources to use them effectively, number one. Number two is we know based on prior work that's been done that applicant preference changes over time, over the course of the interview period. And therefore, if you lock an applicant in, in, in the pre-interview decision into their 25 or 30 signals and their voice and desires change, you have in some way taken away their response. And so I have personally, and these are my own personal Gen Lafamina opinions, um, I personally, until we have data to support high signals, have a lot of concerns about the role of high signals because I really do feel it potentially induces soft application limits that might not honor applicant autonomy in the same way as a low signal. Now, that being said, this is exactly what is being studied, and it might be that high signals are not harmful. I don't know that answer, but I do think it's important to see both sides of this perspective. All right, let's uh, switch gears a little bit here. Now, there have been some proposals for single interview release periods. Can you talk to us about what that means and what are the advantages and disadvantages of having that? Sure. So as COVID started and we transitioned to virtual interviews, I think all programs observed a decreased cancellation rate in interviews, which further compounded this issue of who's really interested in my program, meaning that if an applicant is given an interview, they tended to hold tight on those interviews and not release them. And this is called hoarding or interview hoarding, where essentially interview-rich candidates or those who have high numbers of interviews keep hold of an extraordinary number of interviews beyond what they would need for a successful match. And there are ways to predict what a successful match interview number is. And frankly, that is in the NRMP applicant survey. So if anyone has not read that survey, it's on the NRMP website, you should, because that tells you that the average number of interviews that an applicant needs in surgery, I believe, is around 16. So essentially what was happening more and more in, in virtual interviews was this hoarding by interview-rich candidates of interviews beyond what they would need. And so the goal of single interview releases, which was, pioneered by Dr. Maya Hamoud in OBGYN was that if you release all of your interviews in one period, it has a number of positive attributes or outcomes. Number one, I think we all know that during interview release period, our poor medical students are glued to their phones. They are so worried about missing an offer and therefore not having the opportunity. And so arguably, education is challenged in that period because they're too busy on their phones appropriately waiting for their interviews. So number one, single interview release periods offer the opportunity to reduce the stress and anxiety to students of monitoring their phones actively. Number two, though, it actually helps distribute and mitigate interview hoarding, specifically, which has now been shown by Dr. Hamoud and the OBGYN specialty. By releasing all at one time, or at least starting the process all at one time, the pool of offers is out. So the applicants have the ability then to take a couple and redistribute to the rest of the pool the remaining interviews versus the alternative, which is you're kind of holding on to all your interviews all year because you don't know what's coming. And so without a doubt, we did hear at least qualitatively 
a feeling that this was beneficial to the stress and anxiety of medical students and allow the optimization of their education in this period. But in addition, now there is data suggesting that this really helps redistribute the interview offers across the entire applicant pool and reduces hoarding, which is good for everyone, right? It's good for those who are not interview rich. It is good for programs because now the programs have a better understanding of who is truly interested in their program. Yeah, I think that plus the APDS recommendations about not requiring people to respond in you know less than a few days. I, I just met with a student who was saying they weren't going to schedule anything clinical during the application period because they want to be available to respond to emails immediately. And that was like mind-blowing to me, you know, that they're going to sacrifice their education so they can respond in five minutes to an offer. You know, so along those lines, you know, the other thing that we've been hearing about is this uncoupling or decoupling of rank lists. What does that mean? And why would we want to do this? Why would we want two separate rank list certification times? How does that help anybody? So this is now moving, if you think again of that continuum we talked about. So initially what we talked about is application numbers in the first part, right? What's under the WMC and ERAS programs and applicants. And now what we're moving into is the later part of that continuum. And essentially two years ago when we were in the middle of the peaks of COVID, the task force for the APDS, tried to, with stakeholder input, set forth principles of how to develop within COVID equitable interview platforms or practices that at the same time also supported safety of applicants and programs. And so in year one, the recommendation was to go all virtual. And the reason for that initially was obviously at that point we were peaking in COVID. So from a safety perspective, but in addition, we know well from data in other professions that all interview platforms are not the same. There is data that support if an applicant interviews virtually versus live, scores will be different. And so really in year one, the goal of equity was really at the top of everyone's attention and supporting an all virtual option was favorable because it put all applicants on the same playing field. However, in year two, as COVID restrictions loosened and safety was still important, but not at the kind of front of the dialogue and every conversation because COVID surges were starting to come down, equity became even more important, I would say. And this is where you, you, we need to go back and think about what does an applicant need to make a ranked decision? And what we know, again, from the NRMP data on the NRMP website, is if you look at what an applicant needs to make a decision on their rank list, the applicant needs culture of fit and location, right? Those are their top two characteristics by which they make a rank list. And so therefore, there was a concern that by going all virtual, we were not in a way allowing the applicants the information they needed to make these critical decisions for the next five to seven years of their life. So that was the premise around how do you create a live component? But again, this comes down to equity. And when you look at equitable models, you must make sure there's uniformity of evaluation. You must ensure there's transparency. And so different options that were thrown around were either go all virtual, which some programs were not enthusiastic about. Applicants would not be able to assess culture of fit. There was a discussion around hybrid, which is a potential all live, which 
for many reasons brings up concerns of equity because not all applicants have the resources to go to all of these interviews. And so ultimately, decoupling of rank list means that the program certifies its rank list and then allows a post-evaluation site visit that is optional because the rank list has already been submitted, but that allows the applicant to come in, see the culture of fit, see the location, again, the top two priorities on the survey, and then submit their rank list in a decoupled fashion. And why is it equitable? Well, number one is everyone has the same expectations or the same opportunity. Going to a live interview, which might be prohibitive for a number of our applicants and is therefore inequitable, is now mitigated because by having the rank list submitted by the program, their presence at that visit has no impact. So their attendance is purely voluntary. Yeah, but what happens if that person shows up and they're like a total bozo and you realize you don't want them in your program? So that that is a challenge, without a doubt. Now, in good faith, one should know that when you certify a rank list, you, you can recertify a rank list, right? And that is true. Unless there is a change in that process where the rank list is locked, um, a rank list technically could be changed if it needed to. Now, that being said, if programs made this recommendation or implemented this, we recommended that they did hold true to that standard. But it, it is definitely a strategy that prioritizes the applicant and puts the applicant at the center point. I do want to bring up, though, something really important, and that's that when you look at what a program needs to rank a rank list, it's not until you get to the end of page two where there is a data point for programs that needs to be done live. The top factors programs use to make their rank list are not location or desired culture of fit, at least not what they're responding on the NRMP survey. They're talking still about values, objective class performance, step two scores. And so the question is, do programs need the live visit as much as an applicant? And at least data leading into this suggests that it's not as impactful in a ranked decision. Again, though, it's a balance. Although, frankly, at this point in virtual world, I do think there are various ways to identify with a really good holistic review professionalism concerns, whether that be in the MSPE or flat letter of recommendation, the way one interacts in a virtual interview. I do think it is very feasible and possible, frankly, to assess personality and goodness of fit in a virtual world. And I think we're doing that all the time now. And so it would be an interesting study to see how many times this happens and an applicant was felt to not be compatible. Yeah, I mean, to your point, we've been doing it this way for the past few years. I think it gets back to your idea, holistic review, that if we're doing a good, thorough evaluation, it's going to be very few people that get right. through the cracks. And certainly in the old way, there were people that got through the cracks and had to be in remediation plans and dismissed from programs. So I think with that, we'll go on to our educational sign-out. Yeah, so if you could just give a few key points for our listeners you want them to take away regarding the residency application process. The recruitment process right this minute is in a profoundly dynamic phase. And I really do think signals are essential. I think we're in the infancy of signals and there are a lot of ways to expand them. I also think signals are not the magical answer. 
And I do think in order to solve these global problems, we really need to think of this as a continuum, the collaboration between organizations. We need to ensure that whatever we do, we have the applicant first. We always talk about transparency and we always talk about equity. And I certainly don't think one of these items is going to solve all of our problems. That being said, I think we are very privileged to live in a time where people are ready for change. Applicants are ready. Programs are primed. The organizational groups are all ready. And so while I don't think signals per se or single interview release period solve all of our problems, I do think we are now entering into a phase where we're about to see some really wonderful things transpire. I think there are a lot of changes that could be implemented, whether it be in how you signal, whether it be alterations in, you know, rank deadlines, whether you reconsider how you think of subspecialties. So I think there's a lot of ways to think about this. But at least for now, I'd like to leave everyone with the applicant is the center of this process. At all costs, we must maintain their equity. And really, we need to start to think about this as a continuum, because that's really the only way to kind of solve all of these problems. Well, thank you so much for this incredibly deep and detailed dive into the application process. I think it'll be really valuable for the program leaders, residents, and students who are going through the process now. So thank you. We really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you for having me today. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.